Scott. And this is Lindsay. And you're listening to Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we talk to people about the manuscripts they love the most. Today, we are thrilled to have with us Mac and Zoe from the Maniculum podcast. Zoe is a narrative designer at Obsidian Entertainment, notably on Pentiment, a medieval murder mystery adventure game, which I hope we'll be able to talk a little bit about today, and now on Avowed, which is still in development. Zoe has a degree in English from Purdue and a master's in medieval studies from Trinity College, Dublin. In her spare time, she co-hosts the Maniculum podcast, where two medievalists and game devs teach you how to turn medieval stories into TTRPGs. Mac is a PhD candidate at Purdue University. He does medieval stuff and he co-hosts the Maniculum podcast. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. So excited to be Thank here. Thank you. Maniculum? Did yes. I say that right? We picked the weirdest like word to <laughs> I say. should be able to say that. The, the, the <laughs> benefit is that it's really easy to find us on Google. But the, <laughs> the detriment is that you we have, have to, to like to spell it. <laughs> yeah, right. it, it's hard to give it to people verbally. Okay. All right. I'm we didn't think that, that one through. <laughs> it's okay. It's very distinctive. And I should be able to say that word. Yeah, it is um, a manuscript term. It is a manuscript term. We call them manicules. So that yeah. second, yeah. having the second, yeah. s- the other that, syllable there. That was actually my original pitch. Zoe wanted to do the Latin version. I don't remember I why. I like the Latin. I think it was the, there was a cool um, article I read on manicules and manicula. And I think there was enough other like Google searches for manicule that maniculum worked better but I, I mean i have all my wacky latin experience as well so i tend to lean into the latin but yeah th- this is an episode that just came out but to give you an idea of what zoe means by la- wacky latin experience one of our listeners asked what her favorite book was and she said cicero yeah oh yeah i said cicero's <laughs> on obligations because yeah. of oh like gosh. fond childhood memories of it yeah okay look <laughs> I had a very classical education, and by very classical education, I mean I started Latin in the third grade, okay? Oh my heavens. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, was a, it was a weird background, very like classical Christian education, which has served me very, very well, given that I have gone into medievalism uh, and have tempered this with a lot of medieval studies as well as like uh, well, not politics per se, but it's it's been a weird background, uh, especially growing up in the church and realizing that not everybody had my same Christian education. So mm-hmm. I started a lot of arguments with pastors who uh, did not cite their sources. And I, 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 <laughs> uh, I was a problem child in the church, if you will. <laughs> Excellent. And then eventually she left the wilds of Alaska and had to adapt to the modern world. I did. Yep. Oh, wow. Alaska. Yep. Yep. I, I have a weird background. There's just, there's a lot going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So how did you get from Alaska to Ireland? What was your, what was your path? That's its own story. <laughs> uh, let's see. Grew up in Alaska and jumped around to a couple different universities during undergrad uh, ended up at Purdue so I could do aviation and an English degree at the same time because uh, I, I wasn't sure which way I wanted to go because a lot of people in Alaska fly. My dad's a pilot, uh, so I, I could do both at the same time, but sort of fell in love with uh, that storytelling and medieval studies. And Trinity College Dublin in Ireland had a one-year medieval studies program, and I was like, oh, it's one year. I'll do it. And then COVID <laughs> popped out, so it became mm-hmm. like a two-year thing. And with COVID, like the aviation industry tanked. And I was like, well, I like this better. This is great. I'll just keep going with that. Uh, And then eventually went from medieval studies into video game development. And now I write narratives for video games at Obsidian Entertainment. Mm-hmm. With a Purdue's where, where I come in, by the way. I was doing yes. my master's there at the same time Zoe was finishing up her undergrad there, and we took one of the same classes. Yep. Ah, so yep. that's how you met. It was Purdue. Yeah. Yes. Purdue yep. University. I'm actually still there. I'm finishing up my PhD right. now. 
Yeah. So at what, at what point and how did you guys decide to do this podcast? This, not this podcast, but your podcast, podcast. Maniculum, the (laughs) Maniculum podcast. Uh, It was while Zoe was in Ireland, I had just met a couple of really interesting guys at the Medievalist Conference in Kalamazoo, and they told me they did a podcast called Saga Thing, which Mm, Which you mentioned. I've heard you mention that on on your own episodes, yeah. Yes, it's it's a wonderful podcast. I checked it out, and after listening through like all the archives and really enjoying it, I was like, we could do something like this. Mm-hmm. but not confined to the sagas. We could just kind of ramble a field into all these different corners of medievalism. Mm-hmm. And the first person that came to mind when I was trying to think of a co-host was Zoe. So I, I contacted her and she yeah. said she was in. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for me, uh, we gave it a TTRPG bent specifically because one of my big things uh causes if you will is sort of breaking down the ivory tower of education and making all this cool stuff more accessible because a lot of people Mm -hmm. had really stupid history teachers or didn't get that kind of background education and they're like okay yeah beowulf is the foundation of english literature whatever and they don't understand how freaking awesome it is Uh, And I really wanted to make that more accessible. And for me, again, through that storytelling bent that I have, I suggested, okay, instead of just talking about these weird manuscripts and stories, why don't we teach people how to adapt them, how to use them, create their own stories out of these things and sort of further that, I guess, great, great circle, great chain of storytelling progress. And there was, to an extent, the involvement of ttrpg stuff was inevitable like it came up as soon as we started discussing like what what we could do other than just reading the texts and Mm -hmm. part of that is because i was introduced to dungeons and dragons as a small impressionable child and after 20 some years of that it's it's carved its own channel in my brain so i i I think of almost everything in in in, it comes easily to me to think of things in D &D terms so Mm -hmm. that's that's just often where my brain goes And now, since this is the Inside My Favorite Manuscript podcast, we are legally obligated to now make you tell us a little bit about your favorite manuscript or manuscripts or thing about manuscripts or whatever you'd like to, whatever you'd like to talk about. So I don't know who would like to start. I know Mac had some notes and Zoe had... A little something. I do. I can. I can go first if you want. Is that okay? I do want to make sure we have time for for the pentiment material because I'm sure at least one person is tuning in just for that. Just for that. All <laughs> well, right. we can, so we'll we can start... come back to that a little bit as well. Um, oh gosh, my favorite manuscript. Hmm. I tend not to lean towards any particular manuscript, but my mm-hmm. sort of thing is marginalia. I'm absolutely obsessed with reading between the lines, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did a very short paper for my master's degree, actually, on medieval note-taking in books 10 and 11 of the Historia Regum Britanniae. And essentially what I did there was I compared two different copies of the History of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey of Monmouth. And essentially it's the same text more or less uh, that has been transcribed into two different manuscripts and I compared the marginalia in those particular chapters. Uh, What I would absolutely love to do would be an entire PhD comparing all of the marginalia between as many of the uh, (laughs) history of the kings of Britain manuscripts as I could find but obviously for a particular course in a master's degree, you have to kind of scope down mm-hmm. what you're doing. So the findings were fairly interesting. I I had to pick things that weren't as massive. I'll read you my thesis since since okay. it's there, <laughs> uh, but then I can get into the more the more interesting parts of it. I always put semicolons in my theses, so I have to find the start okay. of it because it's too damn long. 
Semicolons can come in really handy when you, they do. when you need something. You don't want a period, but you don't, comma doesn't really work. Just it's, throw in a semicolon. I think I've put in uh, semicolons in every single one of my university papers. Like, I love mm-hmm. semicolons. It's a problem. Anyway, uh, it appears During that... my first master's degree, I was actually scolded by one of my professors for overdoing semicolons. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, Lacking it was because I've been told to replace all of my M dashes with semicolons so it looks more professional. <laughs> and then there were too many semicolons. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I was actually told because we, we reviewed papers and uh, in my undergrad, I think it was my one of my freshman classes. He had me read my thesis sentence aloud in one breath because his point was like, oh, you can't do it in one breath. But I did, and he got mad at me. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, my conclusion for this very small paper was that in analyzing the annotations found in books 10 and 11 in TCD MS 514, that's one manuscript, and TCD MS 11500 respectively, it appears that medieval clerics were concerned with understanding their role as both historians and Christians, including concerns of national identity, Christian identity, and textual accuracy. So... Uh, essentially what I did there is like some of the interesting notes that I found were just glosses and uh, like checking things out. Sometimes there were smaller corrections uh, in terms of like, oh, the text is referencing this cultural group as Gauls. And then the glossary note was like, oh, actually, like this is another word for it. In In other parts of the manuscript, there were some interesting little notes where there were like just little side references to illusions of like, oh, we don't do this anymore. Or, oh, Merlin's actually not that great of a guy because the history of the Kings of Britain uh, sort of paints him in a fond light. And so that sort of alludes to a greater growing textual um, mythos of how Merlin was perceived over the course of history and also of this text in, in particular. So it was the very HRB interesting. does still say he's half demon, right? Oh yeah, for sure. But so he's still portrayed. Well, but it's interesting that he's portrayed in a positive light, regardless of being half demon. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, so that's, that's my particular favorite manuscript if, if we had to choose, but more, more broadly speaking is I really enjoy marginalia um, both modern and medieval like you'll find me in used bookstores and if i find Mm -hmm. something with notes with underlines like that's the copy i'm gonna get it's not gonna be the new copy i don't care about the Mm -hmm. new copy i want to be able to see what another person thought about this i have bought several books that i'm i wasn't actually originally interested in just because they were heavily annotated it's it's so Mm -hmm. fun and it's this beautiful way of understanding history uh, and understanding like what the difference in readership is. And of course, it's only like one data point, right? Whether it has several annotators or one, each manuscript is its own data point. And so being able to take the same text and compare it and be able to say, oh, this text was in Cornwall. This text was in Ireland. What are the differences in annotations? And that could be, again, like national identity. How did people see that? Or, oh, we're worried about this, that, or the other thing. Or, oh, we're only doing glosses in this book. That's very informative if a text is only glosses versus, oh, people are drawing little doodles in this one. Like one of them had a great little face with like a long nose. And so instead of having a manicule or a maniculum, like pointing out a little note, it was his nose. nose. And so that was really fun to see. Uh, so, <laughs> so I have a, I have a, I actually have a question about the the um your pro the project that you did your master's oh, project sure. and these and these things because sometimes when you're talking about a gloss it's like the gloss itself is its own text mm-hmm. and so the text you you tend to see it getting copied along with the with the main text and I'm wondering if the maybe not. So maybe the manuscripts that you looked at, but also you, there are many other copies of this. Do you know, or did you see any any influence of that? Did you see anything like this is a set, or did it seem to be like this is one person who is who is doing this? And do you know if there is this sort of gloss um, tradition around, the, like the copying this over? Text? Yeah, um, 
that unfortunately was something that I didn't have the opportunity to dig too much into Mm -hmm. simply because again, this was like a semester long course. uh, And I could only look at a couple of the chapters of the books in, in the manuscript itself from what I was able to see, because I did flip through both of the manuscripts in full, but I only picked those two to like really get into and study. They were the same original text which made it much easier for me to uh, compare because then I'm not having to look at two different versions of the history of the Kings of Britain, which they do exist. There are two different versions uh, or translations, if you will, of that text. But anyway, Mm -hmm. um, they were the same text. Which one is the evil twin? (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) The one with the mustache. Come on. The one with the really (laughs) horrible picture of bead in it. (laughs) Um. But yeah, because actually there was a there was a really fun little depiction of, of bead uh, in, in the margin. But um, since they were the same text, they didn't actually have the same glosses, which was very, very interesting to me. So wh- wherever these two texts were coming from, they were not drawing from the same like original text with annotations. They were both creating mm-hmm. their own unique individual Got annotations. It. Let's see, there was a, one of them was far more focused on providing little gloss notes that are like bookmarks. So like note on Catawald uh, Mm -hmm. versus other, let's see. And then the other one had like the pictures of like more of the doodly stuff. So that was very fun, very fun to see. But I I didn't see the same annotative history in those texts, which is why it was so interesting to me, because if there was that same history, it's like, oh, okay, cool. They're both drawing from the same original text that they copied from. But these are two different textual marginalia textual depictions. (laughs) Right, right. And it it sounds at least like it was potentially personal to the scribe or the person who was who was reading it and and it sounds like they're very different so this is two people looking at the same Mm -hmm. text and having a very different response to it which exactly i love yeah (laughs) i love the if you're interested in like the humanity of the people who made these books and use these books this is just such a great example of of that yeah. And, and yeah. again, that's what draws my interest to this is you have two different people reading the same text, maybe even hundreds of years apart and coming up with different conclusions. And that's fun to see nowadays in our history. Like when you talk to somebody about like, oh, I really liked Lord of the Rings. What did you get out of it? And it's like two totally different experiences. Mm-hmm. It's really cool to just be able to see that in history and in the medieval period and so for me i'm just like oh that's so great yeah that's very cool so so now i'm gonna segue from that to i I guess i'll I'll ask a question and that is um how did or did this study of of um marginalia influence the work that you did on pentiment uh which is about a scribe sort of making a manuscript and making his way through through this imaginary world yes oh boy in so many different ways Uh, and everything I say here is my personal experience on this project it's not reflective of uh, obsidian itself Uh, just me and how I understood the project to work Uh, but essentially that entire experience was in part why I was brought into the project was was for my medieval background and experience. And one of the ways that we really brought that forward was through allowing you as a player to create the version of history you wanted to tell because you are an artist. And so uh, in the last stages of the game, you're learning about the town's history and you've been tasked with painting a mural. How are you going to depict that? How are you going to depict the town's history and the things that you have allowed to happen? And so then you as the player have to grapple with how am I going to write this history? And so maybe that's not as much marginalia, but it is you deciding, you know, (laughs) what kind of text do I want to leave behind? And then there's other much more literal ways that we included textual history and and that sort of thing, which is through the actual dialogue of the text itself. Uh, Different characters have different handwriting, which depicts Mm -hmm. their social class and education level. 
So like the monks have like beautiful Gothic letterhand, whereas there's like peasant script. Uh, and there's also textual errors. They will write something out incorrectly, cut it and scrape it off like in a manuscript and then put the right letter on. Uh, like in the speech bubbles? In the speech as you play through the game. Uh, so it's really, really cool. <laughs> I haven't yeah. actually played this. Even It sounds fascinating. And even though I know like someone who worked on it, I don't actually own any device that can run modern video games or a yeah, television totally to connect fair. that device yeah. to. So I have not yeah. actually played so it. So I actually, I actually haven't played it either, although I really want to. But I watched Ali Alvis uh, mm-hmm. did some playthroughs and posted them to their um, to their YouTube channel. And, and they're, so... they're going to come on to the show. We're, I'm oh, very, excellent. I'm very excited to have them on. Yeah. No, they're um, – so that was really – so that so I watched that and that was it was great and I did notice the the different scripts and I think it it it's such a like small thing but it really mm-hmm. adds something because it really like as soon as somebody starts talking it's like an accent exactly you know? it's like a written version of an accent like as soon as you start talking to somebody you know where they're from and you're gonna start judging them sort of based on what you think about however they're talking and it's like a visual way to do that in a really clever yeah uh, really yeah. clever way especially because yeah. there is no voice acting it's just mm-hmm. the text and that was a very very deliberate choice because we're depicting manuscript history there's no there's no voices there there's just what's on the page mm-hmm. um and and with that we're also depicting how andreas your character sees people and so the text mm-hmm. can change when he realizes somebody is more or less educated than he originally thought. So when he learns somebody like, oh, they didn't go to university, but they did have an education at home, that text changes mm-hmm. and your perception of them changes as you play through the game. Yeah, that was very clever. Yeah. We, we had a lot of fun um, playing with that and messing, messing around with that. And we did, I did a lot of um, textual history in just the research of the game. Like, um, there's a very early depiction of uh, a Yiddish typescript for mm-hmm. printing that we included in the game uh, because two of the characters you meet are Jewish printers. And mm-hmm. I dug so hard to find that. Uh, and I was worried we weren't going to be able to find it because our game is set in um, 1518 and, and several years on from that. And it was right when uh, Jewish printing was starting to become a thing. And mm-hmm. so I was very worried that, that I wasn't going to find any textual evidence for that. And it's like, okay, cool. We just won't show it. Uh, but I was, I was able to find that. And then, I mean, we have an entire bibliography in the credits, uh, which was so much fun to put together. But yeah, we, we put a lot of, uh, a lot of work. There's even double bookkeeping, which... <laughs> I think I spent a week trying to understand so that I could replicate mm-hmm. it correctly. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so, that's so fun. So is your title like narrative designer? Is yeah. that right? Yep. So, so I think about narrative and I think about stories and clearly Pentiment is a story, but it's not a story. Like I write short stories and I, my short story, you know, I start at the beginning. It, it, there's a beginning and an end and a middle. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always go like in chronological order. You can move things around, but it seems to me that something like a video game, like Pentiment, mm-hmm. is like a completely different thing because at points you have to make choices. Like your your um, your character does one thing or another. How do you respond when the king is talking to you, um, and this kind of thing? So. Um, so it's like a different kind of story or a story maybe told in a different kind of way. And yes. how do you, how, as a storyteller, how, how do you do that? It's a, big a question, lot of practice. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, it, it really depends on the type of game you're creating because Pentiment, for example, is a narrative adventure game. Andreas has his own character that you, um, you kind of, step into the role of versus for instance an rpg where you have to keep the door open for players to pick any kind of backgrounds that they want to play so there's there's 
that element of it. But the biggest difference between writing a story, for instance, in a book, a novel, a short story, whatever, is that your players have to have agency in a video game. And incorporating that is very difficult. And so once you start seeing it as, or rather, once you start seeing video game writing as a middle ground between writing a novel, for instance, and TTRPGs, where the players can do anything they want, then that really helps sort of set the stage. Because you have to provide set points, you have to lead the player in different directions, uh, but you also want them to have the ability to pick different actions. Um, so for me, the way that we write that and the way that I like to visualize it is sort of like a lemon shape. And essentially what that means is as I, I was really hoping you weren't going to explain that and just say like, it's like a lemon. <laughs> 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 That's it. <laughs> you understand. <laughs> it's sour and hard to eat. <laughs> Yellow. Yeah, it's, it's all it's yellow. Really, anyway, it's better than it tastes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and <laughs> I actually Sorry. got this. No, you're good. You're good. I actually got this analogy from figure skating because when you're learning how to figure skate, you create little lemon shapes, and that's how you learn how to how to push off. And I was like, oh, that shape is the same shape as game writing and, and narrative design and storytelling. And what I mean by that is we write in nodes, basically like bubbles. So think of it like you're doing a little brainstorm where you start with one node and or like one circle in the middle and then you go out and there's different possibilities. I like to do that more or less directionally. So you start with one node, which is the opening of the conversation or the opening of the story, and then you branch out. And you don't want that to go forever and ever and ever because you get exponential outcomes, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead, you provide a bunch of different options. And that's the widest point. And that's usually the middle or the like three-fourths of the way through the conversation. And then you slowly bring it back together to tie up that conversation. And so that way you have this lovely little lemon sort of oval shape that provides the framework for the conversation. And so then you as the writer don't have a thousand and one variables that you have to keep track of. You have a lot. There are a lot of variables in video game design and especially the bigger the game, the more variables you're going to have. But when you can provide structure to that, then you're both providing choices to the player base and still leading them in the right direction because you are at the heart of it. You're the DM, you're the GM, mm -hmm. you are the storyteller and you can't just let the players run wild because they're not going to be satisfied with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and that's something that I think a lot of players don't <laughs> realize. They're like, I want to be able to do everything. No, you don't, honey. You really, <laughs> really don't. You, and you can see this in TTRPGs where you really can do anything but you still mm -hmm. buy into those narrative hooks. You buy into that suspension of, of disbelief. Um, mm -hmm. And so people want stories and they want good stories and you have to provide a framework for that. So the, that sort of lemon is how I do that. And you can yeah. do that on a micro level in terms of an individual conversation with an NPC. And you do that on a macro level in terms of cool. We have three major areas you can go to and you can go to them in any order you want. And those will each have their own stories. And then as we come to the climax of the game, we narrow you back down into one specific area that you haven't been mm -hmm. to before. And so that way, again, you get that same lemon shape. You start in one area, you explore, you come back down to the climax and you finish in a different area. Uh, hopefully that made sense. <laughs> it made sense to me. It kind of sounds like you're describing a choose your own adventure book, but with a limited number of endings. Basically, yes. And and yeah. that's where narrative video games kind of come from. That's that sort of mm -hmm. history. Um, so essentially, that's how I like to picture and explain the framework for narrative design in a way that makes sense um, to a wider audience that are, you know, usually more familiar with either uh, TTRPGs and or novels. Because in a novel, you are just a spectator. I've always wondered about that, yeah. about how yeah. the writing process works. It's a lot of fun. For, for games. Yeah, I think and it would be fun. I really like it because uh, as I struggle... <laughs> 
in my own writing, because I do my own creative writing, I sit there and I'm like, I have to pick one? I don't want to just pick one way. Oh, come on, man. But, you know, you know, in a video game, you get to write all, you know, three, five, ten different versions of an event. Whereas when you're doing your own creative writing um, for, for a book, you know, you have to pick one. <laughs> this is yeah. my problem whenever I want to write fiction. I like, I, I think of a, like a setting and an overarching concept. And then I'm like, okay, and now the players come in and they mm-hmm. make the decisions, right? I'm like, no, wait. I just, no, that's you. Th- th- you make the this decision. is a book, not a D and D adventure. <laughs> yep, yep. That's right. What's also fun about having the player get to make choices is that I noticed when I was watching Ali play that remind me of the name of the character's name, uh, Andreas. Andreas. So, Andreas. Not only are they different choices, but they're choices that imply a personality. Yes. So, so it's almost like you can decide. Oh, today, today he's going to be an asshole. Yeah. So I'm going to play him like he's an asshole, and then next time you're like, well, no, maybe he's going to be nicer today, and so I'll play it like that. Exactly. Um, and I thought that was really that was really nice because, as, as Mac was saying, like when you're when you're writing, you know, your own fiction writing, you make the characters, and you have to decide what that character is like, and mm-hmm. then you've chosen, and then they can't change because then if they change, it's like well, that's out of character. Yeah. Like this way, Andreas, he could be however you want him to be at any point. Yeah, exactly. And the fun part with that there is we get to play with the player, if you will, uh, and say, oh, hey, remember when you were an asshole the other day? Yeah, that character remembers that. They don't like you anymore. You get to deal with that for the rest of the game. Oh, by the way, this game covers 25 years. Good luck. (laughs) Good luck. And so, uh, again, that's, that's one of the fun things about video games is you can create that kind of reactivity that you can't get in a lot of other forms of media do you have anything else you'd like to say about pendiment before i turn to mac and make him talk about the rutland Psalter? i will say that if you enjoy manuscripts you will absolutely enjoy pentiment we reference manuscripts by name like the inder maura manuscript we reference that by name Uh, We have a lot of manuscripts that you can flip through. There are manuscripts in medieval French. There are a bunch of manuscripts in Latin. Um, There's a bunch of Latin that I I hand translated for the entire book. So if you really want to get in deep and make this a manuscript like practice session, uh, you can go through and critique my Latin. Uh, (laughs) But essentially, if you like manuscripts... Uh, but you're maybe someone who has not played a video game before or are kind of nervous about doing that. It's essentially a visual novel. It's a point and click adventure. It's the puzzles in it are not hard. The gameplay mechanics are not hard. You can play it literally mm-hmm. with just your mouse and just using clicks. So I highly, highly encourage you if you're maybe not a gamer, but you are a historian, you are a medievalist, you are someone who likes books and history, check it out. Because we made it to be accessible. Oh, and we also have uh, historical lettering and ligatures. So you can turn that on if you want to practice reading those fancy little S's. I can confirm. I I don't know if it's fun to play. It looks fun to play. In the show notes, I will put links to the Pentiment website. And I'll also put in links to Ali Alvis's playthroughs. Because that will give you a really good sense of what the game is like before you want to put your money down on it. I'll also say, if you are really interested in watching another playthrough of a historian going through it, do check out Ludo History's playthrough. He spent hours going through, pulling up JSTOR articles, like tearing our game apart and giving you all of the historical background on it. So if that's something you're interested in, his playthrough is just a joy to watch. So that's awesome. I'll put that in the show notes too. I would like to add that from what I've seen, the art is also excellent and also like steeped in manuscript references. I saw one screenshot that was that little medieval oyster. It's like a spiky ball with a beak. Mm -hmm. And I loved that that got into the game. Yes. We have a lot of cool animals. There's also, I understand an Ethiopian scribe in there and the art 
around him and his family because he has a family i think is traditional ethiopian art so it looks yes. very different yep. from um from the other ones yeah because they have a whole manuscript tradition of their own yes, yeah precisely. yeah and it is very distinctive yeah. <laughs> and, like when you see an ethiopian manuscript you know it you yeah you um, absolutely know did it. a really it's good job eyes. with that it is the eyes the eyes <laughs> the big eyes i'm gonna put a you know what i'm gonna put a few images of of ethiopian manuscripts in the show notes just for those folks who haven't seen it because you're so you look it's at it, just like, so stunning yeah it's, very it's really stunning yeah. and beautiful so for for right. that art style the older characters are done in the painted manuscript style the younger characters are done in a printer's woodcut style or block cut oh, style interesting uh mm-hmm. to to reflect that change in typography yeah. if you will and then of course Subhat is done in that ethiopian style because he has a very mm-hmm. different tradition than our little german peasants so little mm-hmm. background on that one what text did you it. give Subhat? he has an ethiopian bible that he brings so uh readers who are familiar with that christian tradition will recognize different scenes of like the annunciation or jesus coming out from the tomb different images like that I mean, like, in his speech bubbles. Um, I believe he has... Like, it's not, uh, how do you pronounce it, Gaez or something. Gaez. Right? No, no, no. I, th- I think he gets either the, like, educated font or the... I don't think he has the Gothic script because he's not technically a monk. He's just a visitor staying at the monastery. But yeah, he has a more educated script. But overall, a beautiful and interesting mm-hmm. game i wanted to make sure to mention the art because I, I have spoken to one of the artists like over over the internet through zoe and they're great and i want to make sure they get credit and it's oh, very yeah. Pretty. yeah it's a very pretty game oh yeah our artist blew it out of the water all right now i'm going to turn to mac because you i asked you what your favorite manuscript was and yes you and were I, like I, <laughs> what did I, I, you say when i asked you that <laughs> uh I'm, I'm basically that i'm not a manuscript expert i don't know anything about manuscript studies i have no formal education in it but i do have a lot of feelings about the rutland psalter and so we're going to give you some time to talk about how you feel about the rutland psalter and and maybe share some share some images with us i'm gonna actually for the listeners and for y'all the Rutland Psalter has been digitized by the British Library. Amen. So I'm going to drop a link into the chat. All right. And so you can follow along with like what I say, and you can take screenshots from that site to, to put on, on the blog post. I will definitely do that. So what is the Rutland Psalter? Let's start there. Well, it's a Psalter, uh, which means that, <laughs> which means it's the text of the Psalms. So the text yeah. doesn't matter. Uh, if you want to know what it says, go get a copy of the Vulgate. It's all the same, unless you're seeking out scribal errors or something. But it's a, a manuscript from about 1260, which means it's one of the early versions of the like extravagantly uh, illustrated manuscript as far as the English tr- tradition goes. And I don't know a lot about the details or like the background because there's, mm-hmm. I haven't been able to find a lot of articles on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's because it's kind of intimidating. Um, I would very much, what I think would be great if it existed is like a book that goes through all the marginalia in the Rutland Psalter. Cause the marginalia is the part that I, that I like that I'm here for mm-hmm. and like explains can I swear on this podcast? You may swear. And explains <laughs> what the fuck we're looking at, because half the time it's <laughs> not clear. But like I I can't do this project because I don't know the answer to most of that and I don't know where to even right. start looking. And I worry that that's going to be the case for like most people. And that's why this book I'd love to exist doesn't exist. Right. I'd like to tell you cool. about some of my favorite marginalia from this song. Please. It's gorgeous. It's got these, especially in the beginning, but like throughout, it's got these blue, red, and gold like pin flourish or ornaments everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a particularly good example on that of that on Folio 14R. Let's see, 14R. Oh, oh my! Yeah, 
And this is also a page with a good example of another like recurring motif throughout it, which is these uh, wyvern things, like the the oh two legged, two winged dragons. And he's pulling on that guy's foot. Yes. He's pulling. So there's this, as, as Max said, so there's this two legged, two winged, uh, sort of wyvern dragony thing, and it's pink, pink and blue stripes, very pretty, and it's got this guy's foot in his mouth and the guy is holding on <laughs> to the column where the initials are i've never seen that before actually at the at the front of the lines there's this column going down where the illuminated initials are located and it has blue blue sort of sides and the guy you can see his hand wrapping around that's so interesting because he's like interacting with this different you would call that a different part of the of the, the page yeah but he's he's interacting with it in a very physical way yeah and that that's that's a another like common thing you see throughout the psalter is like the little the the stuff in the and i'm gonna mangle this because it's it's usually it's a french phrase the stuff in the bas de page region mm -hmm. at the bottom as we might say in english often <laughs> like interacts with the that column there's a there's a column of letters at the beginning of uh, at the left of, of a lot of the pages and the marginalia will interact with it like there are like faces that are like eating it there are people hanging on to it there's wyverns climbing in it um, unfortunately it only goes about half the way through and then like the art style changes and it's mostly pin flourishes with only occasional marginalia but the first half is really interesting I just zoomed in and the poor guy is terrified. Yeah. <laughs> His face is clearly, he is not a happy camper. Yeah, there are great facial expressions yeah. in this. Oh my gosh. And it's you said this was in 12... 1260. 1260, wow. And most of the manuscripts that are this elaborate are from about 100 years later. So this is like an yeah. early example of this kind of tradition. I love yeah. how much detail they managed to fit into these things. Like you can see just the detail of how his clothing wrinkles and folds and like, and this isn't massive either. Like this manuscript isn't huge. I think it's just like a normal uh, book size. I, I'd have to check to see it's his exact dimensions, but like, it's not, it's not like a codex gigas or anything. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's, fascinating to just page through and since it's digitized everyone can do it and i, I do that frequently <laughs> yeah yeah i'm looking at the same page there's guys fighting at the top Oops. yes in the top Ooh. margin and this is another one of my favorite things about this manuscript is that there are a lot of just like funny little guys in the margins and this, this is not a technical term or probably a period accurate term but i always think of the little guys in the like rutland salter margins as goblins because they seem very gobliny they do they do look gobliny yeah they don't quite look human mm -mm. Yeah, I, th I think a some of them are just like supposed to be like grotesques or hybrids and they're 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 like mostly human but not quite i think some of them are supposed to be apes and some of them are just mm -hmm. drawn very small and kind of inexactly. But a lot of them seem very, I don't know, goblin-y. They're, they're funny little guys. I love <laughs> it. And this is just one page. Yeah, I want to point you to some of the other things that I think are, are the most fun in here. All right. One thing I love about it is that it has a lot of the peoples that are mentioned in texts like the Wonders of the East and that mm -hmm. are all those guys that originate from Pliny the Elder. Like, um, famously, on 57R, there's a Blimier. Oh, I love the Blimier. He's Let's got see. a crossbow. It's great. There are actually several humanoid figures that I think might be meant to be Blimiers, but right. this is the one that, like, yeah. I'm sure of. Yeah, so before I click on that, I want to make sure that, that I'm remembering correctly. The Blemier is the one who doesn't have a head on top, but the head is like in yeah, the Yeah, his body, head is below right? his shoulders in the chest. That's right. All right. Oh, there he is. Look at him. Oh, he's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's got a pretty good beard. <laughs> his ears are down there too, right on his... He does yeah. have a nice... How do you have a nice beard growing like that? I, I think the author's uh, the author the artist seems to be a bit confused about like what exactly to do with the chin area 
Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. does, does the face stick out? Like, is there a head protruding from the chest, or is it flat against the chest? It's it's unclear. That's what that's why I have difficulty pointing to a lot of these things and saying that's definitely a blemia because, like, the yeah. the head seems to poke out more than you usually see. Oh, this is great. In like a similar vein, if you go to uh, 88V, there's a panotios, which means all ears. And his ears aren't quite as big as you see with the other ones that, like in, in more common depictions, because usually they're, cause they're supposed to be big enough that he can wrap himself in it like a blanket. But there he is talking to like a strange little man-headed duck thing and for some reason <laughs> holding sticks which i don't understand what is what's meant to be going on there but i, I think it's charming i was gonna say he's got a friend there yeah and i just love how this since it's a salter there's no context like the text doesn't explain any of this no it's just good luck here's here's a guy there's an article i found called playing on timbrels by betsy chunko dominguez that tries to make connections between some of the marginalia and the text itself but it's always just like it's a reference to this specific word i've got it open in another window so i can refer to it all right so this is the example from which she gets the title if you go to uh, 67r there is what appears to be a naked Jesus, or at least a man who looks very much like traditional European depictions of Jesus, who appears to be slapping his ass. <laughs> oh my, yes. Look at and that. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> if you look up at the like there's a there one of the letters in the word of in the line above him kind of descends to point at his head. Yeah. The P. Yeah, and that word is Tempanistriarum, which is like like a, a kind of percussion instrument. Oh, interesting. So, like oh there are these gosh. little one word references. And for extra fun, if you look at the facing page, 66V, there's one of my favorite little goblin people. And he appears to be riding a giant bird and pointing a lance at naked Jesus's butt. So if you have it open, if you have the pages open, it's like, here's this guy and Jesus is going, here you go. Right there. <laughs> have a go. Oh my gosh. I I just think it's all very delightful. This is really great. You know, it reminds me of the, oh God, what is the Psalter? It's another Psalter. It's a very famous one. Luttrell by any chance? The Luttrell Psalter. Yeah, you knew I was going to say that. Yeah, the Luttrell Psalter. Luttrell Psalter is my second favorite manuscript. (laughs) Oh, so that's a really fun one. Are you familiar with the the Luttrell Psalter film? Have you heard of the Luttrell Psalter? I did not know there was a film. Okay, so so it's a short film. It was made, now it's been made several years ago, but it's set in the village, apparently near where the manuscript was made because he lived in a manor house sort of near this village. So the manuscript, the Luttrell Psalter, is famous for its weird monstery things in the mm-hmm. margins, but it also is full of idealized images of country life. So like, here we are doing these things. And they made, it's like, it's not long. It's like 15 or 20 minutes maybe. Um, but scenes from the manuscript in in the village starring people apparently who lived in the village. But they're all, you know, dressed in medieval. And there's there's very little talking, but there's a lot of like nature sounds and like their people are playing flutes and stuff. Oh, I'll send you the link cool. and I'll put it in the, I'll put it in the show notes because I love it. It's just such an interesting like little slice of the, this Images from the Psalter that aren't the ones that I usually uh, think about. But it is full of these like weird and wacky creatures. And mm. I'm seeing sort of similar ones in this one. Although that one is more, the Luttrell Psalter is like sort of more crammed with them. And this one feels yeah. like it's not quite as. The Luttrell Psalter is one of the most like richly illustrated manuscripts I've ever mm-hmm. seen. It's also from, I think, the 14th century. Yeah, I think it's later than that. Matt, can you remind me what our other Wonders of the East text was that looked like it was done? I'm not exaggerating here. It looks like it's done in crayon and it looks like Dr. Seuss illustrations. Those are two separate ones. The one that's the one that's very crude is from the same manuscript as Beowulf. Ah, that's right. Mm -hmm. But the the one that has like a lot that has like uh, landscapes that look like they came out of Dr. Seuss is 
it's one of the cotton manuscripts. So it's cotton That's Tiberius right. B5, right. I think. Okay. It's very strange, but definitely give that one a look too if you're interested in these weird depictions of things. Because it, I mean, it looks like it's straight out of Dr. Seuss. Before we drift off the Luttrell Psalter, I actually want to mention something. I'm actually doing a non-scholarly side project with the Luttrell Psalter um, currently. So anyone who's in like the, the TTRPG section of the internet is probably aware that there's like a kind of a challenge called Dungeon 23, where you're supposed to create like a vast dungeon in, in the Dungeons and Dragons sense, not in the like prison sense, adding one room a day for the whole year of 2023. And I decided I would do one where each room is inspired by a manuscript page. Like the like I'd look at the marginalia on that page and say, okay, at least one of these things is present in this room mm-hmm. and do that mm-hmm. for the whole year. And I couldn't do the Rutland Psalter because it doesn't have enough pages with marginalia on it to last the whole year, but the Luttrell Psalter does. Yeah, it does. And so I'm going through it page by page and like basically making a thing that's half inspired by the Luttrell Psalter and half inspired by classic uh, Dungeons and Dragons tropes. And if anyone wants to follow along with that, I'm posting each week both on our website, which is maniculum.com, and on our Tumblr, which is maniculum.tumblr.com. And if you go to maniculum.tumblr.com slash dungeon23, I'm linking to each post there. All right. And I'll put those links in our show notes, too. So thank you. They'll be there. Other things in the the Rutland Psalter I want to make sure we look at, though. In the Rutland Psalter? In the Rutland Psalter. In the Rutland Psalter. Some, some other like Wonders of the East Pliny stuff. Uh, on 87V, there is a skiapod, which means shadow foot, because they shade themselves with their foot. And what might be a blimier, because you can see his head is below his shoulders, but it's like a regular head. So I'm not sure on that one. That's weird. And we had a scribe, basically, on our podcast as a guest a while back. And when I mentioned the Rutland Psalter, this is the illustration he recognized, and that is because the maybe Blemier seems to be shooting an arrow up the Shiapod's uh, rear end. Yes. Which is a very memorable scene. Yes, indeed. It actually reminds me of the Jesus scene from earlier. It's like, this is what happens later. <laughs> if you'll note, there is another like little thing where a letter from the line above is connecting. Mm-hmm. According to playing on timbrels, the word is conspectu, which means to see or to visually penetrate. Oh, oh come on. That's <laughs> yeah, interesting. Hey in conspectu suo. Oof. Yep. 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 Nice. And we're all quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird one. But like we're, med- it- we're meditating on, on the meditating on the psalm here. <laughs> <laughs> but in addition to those there's a lot of stuff that's just like this is a a weird little thing that's happening like on folio 64r there is a person with one leg and a person with four legs and oh. some kind of weird blue device that i don't know what that's supposed to be i've asked around and not gotten an answer uh maybe it's a leg stealing machine it's i'm not <laughs> sure <laughs> That is oh, and here again, the one-legged person is is holding on to the the decoration at the bottom of yeah, the... yeah. He's like leaning on that little board. Yeah, that's interaction with that. Oh, and again, there's a weird, there's a something weird also happening at the top there. Oh, it's like the a guy like sitting in the tail of a dragon. Oh yeah, yeah. who looks like he's eating an orange. Yeah, I don't. Oh yeah, that is a very strange. They're so whimsical. Yeah. I know that everybody everybody loves the Book of Kells for how beautiful it is and like you get the like all the little detail that's inside the letters, but man, this is just so fun. Mm-hmm. Like it's so irreverent too, which I love. The all the artists were clearly just having fun with it and drawing like little mm-hmm. nonsense things. Yeah. Like one of the other articles about this manuscript, one of the few articles I've managed to find that focus on this manuscript is called The Artists of the Rutland Psalter, and it tries to like sort out how many artists there were, four apparently, plus some assistants, and like which parts they did. And he describes the work of one of the artists as, quote, 
a world that is both curious and disturbing in its seemingly purposeless irrationality, which is possibly like the most like academic way to say like, this is full of just funny little dudes and it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> just little guys. Just little guys having a good time. Like that's 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 why I enjoy it. It's, if you page through this, mm-hmm. almost every page up until like, again, about halfway through, it goes to mostly just pen flourishes. But while there's illustrations, it's it's just mm-hmm. a delight on every page. Like there's one page where like a little white gobliny thing is riding on the shoulders of a big gray gobliny thing and apparently chasing some kind of horned bird. And why? Because because it's funny. That's 88R if you want to, like, put a screenshot in your in your blog post. Yeah, for sure. Oh, look at that. That is interesting. I think I would say that a lot if I... Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. It's every page. Like, that's... that's... <laughs> I hope that at some point you get someone on who knows more about it and can talk about it in detail. Because, like, this deserves concert, concentrated scholarly attention. But I don't have the background to do it. Yeah, I will. I'll see. I don't know if anyone has has nobody has suggested the the Rutland Salter, but maybe I can find someone. Yeah, I who... think it's it's intimidating. There's just so much of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so bizarre. Mm-hmm. What freaks me out, like if you go to 16 R, because I'm just paging through it, the the weird like musculature on the people. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy who seems to... Be, I don't know what he's doing to the border <laughs> there, but I'm not sure it's helping. He's like... He's facing down? I don't... Yeah, no. Hmm, no, I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's sort of... He's on the bottom of the thing. He's totally naked on the bottom of the thing. On the bottom <laughs> of the column. He's totally naked. His legs and arms are spread wide. And his back is to... Right? His yeah. back yeah. is to us. He's just kind of splayed out. Yeah, splayed out is a really good way of, say, of explaining that, saying what that is. He's got this weird, like musculature. You can, and it's, I mean, it's not like how you would see somebody do a nude nowadays, obviously. No, because it's very flowy. But mm-hmm. he is depicting a bunch of different, you know, muscles on the body. It's very interesting. I'd say that yeah. that that butt is anatomically questionable. <laughs> yeah, it's a very large cleft in there. Yeah, very interesting. So we've been talking a lot about the the sort of miniature, not miniatures, but the mar- yeah. marginal drawings. Yeah, it does actually have also miniatures that are like full page and like very serious biblical scenes. But, uh, yeah, I saw the one at the very beginning, which is something that you do see in uh, Psalters. Sort of these big fancy Psalters often have these full page start out with like full pages of mm-hmm. miniatures but they also have a lot of decoration sort of in the text and around the text there's like feathery things that are gold and blue and then mm-hmm. other things that are blue and red and gold and oh that go to the like, end of the line mm-hmm. yeah and then around some of them go around the margins and it's like they really wanted to make it as decorated as possible yeah the article the artist of the rutland psalter i think suggests that the reason the the latter half is just pen flourishes is because they were doing such this this such a complicated thing that they ran out of time before like the person commissioned it wanted the book so they had to (laughs) rush through the second half that makes that makes sense yeah i'm looking at the second half and it is less it's still pretty but it's the sort of thing that, that would happen if you asked me to illustrate a manuscript, because I can't draw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not seeing any of those little marginal dudes. Yeah, they they show up every few every, every once in a while. There's like a wyvern or something in the margins, but there are much fewer of them, and they're, they're in a slightly different style. Oh, yeah, this is noticeably... I'm at the very end, I'm in like the 170s, and it's noticeably different. Yeah, it really fades out near the end. There aren't even very many flourishes. Mm-hmm. But it's the same, is it the same scribe that wrote all of it, or are there different scribes too? That one I don't know. I've never looked into who okay. who, who the scribes were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just curious if it was written, see, because the f- first part is one column with 
and then when the sh when the lines are short there's stuff filled in mm -hmm. but then at the at the end it's in two columns i think it's because it's a separate text it switches like it oh, finishes the psalms and then Got goes it. into okay. like some extra prayers and devotions near the end. all right that would ex oh, that would yeah. explain that yeah yeah all right Cool. Yeah. It also has a uh, has a calendar at the beginning that's mm -hmm. also very pretty, and it contains one of my favorite like medieval quote scorpions unquote like oh. it's uh, on five V near the near the middle of the page or the middle oh, of the I book see the of the page. Yeah, and it's oh, that is yeah. a that is a quote scorpion unquote, but it is a lizard. With like a mammalian head and twelve mammalian legs, and it looks nothing like a scorpion. But of course, the people who drew this would never have seen one. They have no idea. Never have seen one. Oh, it does. It looks like a little, almost, almost like a one of those lion-headed dragon things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that you actually do tend to see in. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, all, a lot of medieval pictures of scorpions are then basically just guessing because they've got to put one mm -hmm. in the calendar because Scorpio. But oh, they, don't, they don't know what they look like. They don't know what it actually yeah. is. They don't know what it looks like. That. No, it's the old thing. Well, it's got pinchers and it's got eight legs. Go. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't look like a spider. Oh, so I, try I that. like their version of a crab on uh, 3V. It looks kind of like a spider crab or a horseshoe crab. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of cute. <laughs> it is kind of cute. And a spider, I mean, sorry, and a crab, if they were... Where was the Rutland Psalter made? England. Well, England. Yeah, so they would know. I would think they would know. I mean, if they, they wouldn't necessarily, if they weren't close to the... I, I think this might just be a, a case of them not being able to draw one properly. <laughs> but they didn't just, count the legs right either, because it's got eight artist. legs. No, he's got the wrong number of legs. Or six right. legs and two pincers. But six legs, legs and two pincers, yeah. Cool. And I like I like the calendar, too. Oh, yeah, it's very pretty. It's got, like, the labors of the month and, like, lists of which saints. Like, it's got all the yeah. stuff you'd expect from a calendar. All the stuff, and it seems to be pretty full. Neat. Is there anything else about the Rutland Psalter that you wanted to be sure to... A couple interesting things. The only thing I've got mentioned that I didn't, like, refer to at all in my notes um, is it depicts people playing a couple games that I think would be familiar to us. On 78V, they're playing either chess or checkers, or something similar, at least. Oh, look at that! Yeah, they are! Yeah, like, that's that's a familiar game board, although the, the pieces aren't depicted very clearly, so it's not... I'm not mm -mm. sure what's going on. Like, some of those shapes look like they might be abstracted chess pieces, but it also kind of looks like the guy on the left just threw some dice onto the board, so maybe they're playing something mm -hmm. else entirely. Mm -hmm. And the other guy's got a string... Yeah, I'm not sure what he's doing with that. Maybe he pulled it off the other guy's cape. No, and he's he one of the guy on the left is like nicely dressed and the one on the right is almost naked. Yep. Maybe they're playing strip he's checkers. Like... <laughs> <laughs> there we go. He's down to his last thread. Yeah. <laughs> Fun. There's another one that's a, a less intellectual game, but maybe people remember playing. Uh, as a child, my cousins at least call it a chicken fight. It's on 70V. Oh, so we have four guys. Two are standing on the ground and then they each have other guys on their shoulders. And it's the guys on the shoulders who are fighting. Yeah. Pulling each other's ears, it looks like. Yeah, this, this is, I think, it looks exactly like a, a game that I've seen kids play that I used to play as a kid, where, like, the two people on top are supposed to try and push each other off. We had a weird version of this up in Alaska growing up. Weird versions of everything in Alaska, to be fair. <laughs> okay, yes. What we did is it was exactly this setup, except stick pantyhose over your head with an egg on top, so you now have an egg on the top of your head, and give oh each God. person on top a salmon. Wait, a Whoa. salmon? Yep. So you hit each other with salmon? You hit each other with the salmon to try and crush the egg on your head. <laughs> that seems like a waste of salmon. You, there's so much salmon in Alaska. Okay. It's, I mean, I it's was wild. I figured that if we could just use it to like hit each other. Yep. With. Yep. Wow. 
So yeah, can confirm. <laughs> Amazing. And now here it is in mi- the Middle Ages. In the Middle the... Ages. Yeah. yeah, it's it's one of those things that I feel like is what's the what's the word they call it? Like child lore, kid lore? Yeah. Like nursery rhymes and, and like playground mm-hmm. chants that get passed around from one generation of kids to the next. And I yeah. I I feel like this is like an, an early version of, of something that's been passed around among kids for centuries now. That's that's my uh, extremely unscholarly Rutland Salter <laughs> talk, which is like, look at this cool stuff. It's that's funny. fine. This look is funny this is exactly guy. this is exactly what this manuscript is. Uh, what this manuscript? That's exactly <laughs> what this podcast is for. So yeah, that's yeah, what I want. I want the manuscript is know. for meditating on the songs. Theoretically, I don't know. I feel like I'd be <laughs> meditating on these illustrations. <laughs> like, what the hell yeah. is that guy doing? So much of, of what we get from the Middle Ages feels like that to me. Just like, what on earth is going on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know we cover that a lot in our podcast and you guys do as well. That's sort of Absolutely. a lot of what, what you do. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking to us. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having us. You're very welcome. I'm afraid Lindsay had to step out about halfway through recording. That's why you haven't really heard her talking so i know that she was glad to meet you all too yes and thank you thanks everybody for listening and we will be back again soon thank you for listening to inside my favorite manuscript if you enjoyed our conversation with Zoe and Mac, you should head to their website, themaniculumpodcast.com, where you can listen to their episode featuring me and Lindsay, where we talk about the definition of digital humanities, Dungeons and Dragons, book history, and the secrets of women. Last week, we passed 1,000 downloads, and it's thrilling to know that people are listening to us. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also visit our website, insidemyfavoritemanuscript.tumblr.com, for full show notes for every episode and to contact us directly. We'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them. <laughs>